And I just realized that there, there's, there's gotta be more. And for, for some people, corporate is the right answer. And I've seen it. I've seen people do amazing things in corporate, but I knew for me, there was something more. Um, and so I, I did do something drastic. I left the corporate world, you know, sold my house, put my career on hold. Everybody thought I was totally nuts at the time because it, there was an economic crisis going on. And I'm like, I'm leaving everything and I'm going to live in an ashram for a year or a monastery. Um, so I packed up everything and I, one of my objectives was to completely unplug. Welcome back to Against the Herd, where we explore unconventional approaches for unconventional results and delivering it to you in bullet points, not paragraphs. Today's approach is mindfulness, and it's with none other than Nina Purewall. Nina Purewall is a international best-selling author of the book, Let That Shit Go, and is the founder of Pure Minds. Question for everybody. Have you ever been in a job that you disliked? Have you ever worked at a job that you thought numerous times, fuck this, I'm going to leave, I'm going to quit? Then this is the podcast and the interview for you. I'm not going to give away Nina's story, but she embodies not only boldness, but what it means to truly be against the herd and acting, acting solely based off of you know, what she is feeling, what, is she, what she experienced and living in her true self. And so I absolutely love this interview. I think you all are going to love this interview. And without further ado, before I give any spoilers, let's get into this. Nina Purewall, um, it is with great pleasure to have you on. And I guess just to start things off, could you let our audience know what you're best known for today? Oh, thank you. Thanks for uh, the compliment. And I have always lived a life that has been against the herd and it has been scary and risky, but totally served me well at the end of the day, following my heart. I'm best well known for my corporate workshops and my best selling book, Let That Shit Go. Can we swear on here? Yes. Oh, yes. It's encouraged. <laughs> and so there's a there's so much that I want to jump into. I, I think based off your workshops and and your book, Let That Shit Go. Uh, I think a good place to start before jumping into, right? Because I want to get back to, I want to get to 2010 and really that boldness and what, you know, what just resonated with me and I think with our audience. But you have, mindfulness has been the overarching uh, topic in terms of what you focus on in your workshops. And I think what would be really helpful for us, because I, I think sometimes the lines get a little bit blurred between meditation and true mindfulness. Can you make that distinction for us? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And the way to think about it is meditation is like going to the gym for your mind, right? So it's an opportunity to actually sit there with only you and your mind and your thoughts and your peace and everything that comes with meditation. Mindfulness, on the other hand, is the day-to-day -day practice. So in the moment when you're about to open your laptop, when you're about to present, when you're having a nervous moment, a few deep breaths, getting into the here and now, those are mindfulness type uh, attributes, whereas meditation is actually taking the time to sit and be quiet with your mind. So you can think of one as the day-to-day, -day, one as an actual practice. So the more you practice 
meditation, the stronger mindfulness will be and vice versa. The more you practice mindfulness, the, the stronger meditation practice will be. But the most important thing is both of them are actively observing the mind and understanding what's going on in there. Um, because our mind can be our best friend and our mind can be our worst enemy. So the whole process is about the mind controlling you to you controlling the mind. Essentially. And I love that. And I think it's really well said. And it it's, you know, based on, based on your book, that wasn't always the case, right? It's a, and it's still an ever going training with that. And one of the parts in your book and your story was back in, back in like around 2010, right? Where what really resonated with me is climbing, climbing the corporate ladder, right? And I think you had exactly the moment that every single person in the corporate world has where they're like, fuck this. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to go off the grid. Yeah. And you, well, I don't want to tell the story, but can you take us back to 2000, 2010, 2000, nine 2010 and then also i think a lot of people it's there's a lot of parallels of what's going on now at least from what we can see on linkedin but that whole era was a really special treat in the worst possible way could you also touch on that yeah um so i entered the corporate world i'm gonna rewind back a little bit to my teenage years where i went through some really severe um trauma and that kind of is what catapulted me into my mindfulness and meditation journey. So I lost my dad and my brother very unexpectedly. And it just immediately shifted my perspective in life that you can be gone any day. You need to seize the moment. Um, I was, you know, an awkward teenager then. I didn't know what to do with everything that came at me. And so I really got into, I had, you know, child psychologists and psychiatrists, but really what grounded me was my practice of ancient wisdom and mindfulness and meditation. So I've been practicing this stuff for like 25 years. Um, I didn't really, I knew it was special to me. So I continued to follow that path, but I also did the whole, like, go to school, get your degree. Don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but I'm just going to follow the herd. Right. <laughs> um, and so no pun intended. And so I did that, went to business school, had a great career in sales and marketing. And then, yeah, in 2010, I kind of hit this peak point of stress. I was addicted to work. You know, I was, um, I had a, a big portfolio and I was addicted to my Blackberry or Crackberry, they called it at the time. So I know I'm dating myself. Um, and I just realized that there, there's, there's gotta be more. And for, for some people, corporate is the right answer. And I've seen it. I've seen people do amazing things in corporate, but I knew for me, there was something more. Um, and so I, I did do something drastic. I left the corporate world, you know, sold my house, put my career on hold. Everybody thought I was totally nuts at the time because it, there was an economic crisis going on. And I'm like, I'm leaving everything and I'm going to live in an ashram for a year or monastery. Um, so I packed up everything. And I, one of my objectives was to completely unplug because even at that time I was addicted to tech always checking in my email and whatnot. So I completely unplugged, spent a year um, in a monastery or ashram. It was absolutely incredible. It was also challenging. Um, and, you know, I told people, I said, I'm not, I'm not going to be online. I'm not going to be access to internet, phones, nothing. I want to completely unplug. And I told my friends, you know, if I want to get a hold of me, you have to write me a letter. <laughs> so I actually sent and received 150 letters that year. I still have the box, which is amazing. Um, but I, I came back and it was 2010 and 
I knew deep down and like so much of what I learned about ancient wisdom is applicable to the stress and the anxieties we, we face in the corporate world. And I knew I wanted to share it, but it was 2011. Nobody was talking about mental health in the workspace. Nobody was talking about mindfulness. No one was talking about meditation. So I went back into corporate. I wanted to start up. Um, and yeah, the, the rest of the story goes. I eventually built up the, the balls and the guts to start my own business, but it took some time. Yeah. Fantastic. And can you go into, again, obviously you, you got some trauma happened and that's when you started your practice. What made you start that practice? Did someone suggest it to you? Was it already there and you leaned on it? Yeah, I think it was more already there. And then I, I just leaned in because um, I found it was the only place where I could find true peace. You know, I had a lot of peer-to-peer um, -peer support. I have a lot, I had a lot of, you know, traditional type therapy, um, but it was the only place where I found, you know, those answers within. And I know it sounds really cheesy, but um, the only place where I found quiet, where I found solutions. Um, and, you know, there's this whole concept too, that, you know, we're, we're all one and we're all connected. And I think when you go through grief and loss, like you want to feel that connection. And that was the only place I could actually feel that. And it still is till this day. Like when I meditate, I feel connected to something larger. And so, um, yeah, I, it was always kind of a part of me, but it really, um, catapulted when I went through those losses. Yeah. Understood. So it was a part of you, but it, it strengthened a lot during that time. Um, how do you think that, do you believe that current like mental health in the, in especially the U S is focused enough on meditation and such? Cause uh, you know, it was obviously a huge help to you. Um, yeah. and you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I feel like that there, there's a miss sometimes in getting people introduced to this, right? Instead of being introduced to this yeah. as an option, um, you know, we're given medications or, or not introduced to it. Curious your thoughts on that and, and how you think we can combat that. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I just want to, you know, I'm not a, a psychiatrist or a doctor and I want to sure. reiterate that like meditation isn't going to solve, you know, if you have severe depression or anxiety and you need the meds huge advocate of taking the meds. Um, they can play a really important role. I'm a huge advocate of therapy um, and getting the type of support you need. That said, um, I do think mindfulness and meditation um, can change the, it changes the structure of your brain, right? And there's now science. When I was into it in the nineties, I, I just had an inherent knowing, but now there's all these neurologists and neuroscientists that are behind mindfulness have done MRI scans of the brain for people who have never practiced before to experienced practitioners. And they see that there's physical structural changes that happen in the brain. And there's two things. Um, I mean, there's lots of things that happen, but the two most common are that the amygdala starts to shrink and that's associated with fight or flight, stress, anxiety, and, and simultaneously the prefrontal cortex thickens. And that's associated with concentration and decision-making and awareness. Um, and this can be done in, you know, the impact can be in as little as eight weeks. Um, there was a study done by Sarah Lazar and she's associated with Harvard Medis Medical School, but it's incredible to see what actually happens when you start practicing and you, and you take the process seriously, because it is really about your thoughts. And we think 60,000 thoughts a day, we're aware of less than 1% of them. And studies show that 80% of them are said to be negative or self-deprecating. So yes, take the meds, do the therapy, blah, blah, blah. But if we can just be aware of our own thoughts, you know, and, 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 and shift the thinking, which is really neuroplasticity, right? Changing the, the wiring of our brain, um, you know, why not? Why not do it? Why not supplement? So I do think more, you know, schools, you know, I've done some stuff with, with schools and school boards and um, more 
workplaces, right? When I started, I had two clients in 19 or no, in 2017. And now I've got, you know, over 50. Um, and I think more, I don't, I don't know if doctors are necessarily prescribing it, but maybe suggesting it. So we, I am seeing this, this shift happening, um, which is fantastic, but I think there's so much opportunity to educate around the benefits and the impact of my mindfulness and meditation and to let people know that it's for everyone. It's for everyone. Anyone can meditate. It's such a good point. And like, I take myself back to, again, as we were talking about before we hopped on, before we hit record, right. Of, you know, being in school, a lot of you're dealing with things outside of school, you're in school, you're trying to figure it out. I also think, you know, college just jumping in, like no one knows, no one knows their ass from their elbow at 18. And for them to just make a decision of whether or not they're going to invest so much money into student loans, etc. And I think you talked about this in your book, but you mentioned authenticity. And one thing that I did is I did similar to a disc assessment. It's actually called, uh, I think it's like how to fascinate. And it really helped me in terms of understanding my identity. And that sounds weird because it, you would think that it's something that you should just know automatically, but it just helped me understand that, all right, this is how the world sees me. Can you talk a little bit about how, how important just that authenticity and that identity is? Yeah, I think it's so important. Um, one of the monks that I studied under when I was in California said, as long as you're walking a path, that's not meant for you, you're going to feel like you're walking with a rock in your shoe. And that really resonated um, because I was going back and I was working in corporate and I was like, I had that rock in my shoe. You know, I, I liked it. I loved my job, but I didn't love my job, you know? So um, I think too, in today's world, especially for youth and people in school and in college and, um, you know, entering the workforce, they're so impacted by the external, right? What everybody else is doing, you know, as I said, going with the herd, um, you know, what's happening in social media, what your friend circle are doing, the pressure from, you know, family, um, the pressure to all kinds of things to, to, to make money, to have this kind of a job, to have this kind of a salary, like, and, and so we tend to just like, we're on autopilot, right? Yeah. So we don't really know, like, I, I would love to know what percent of people who go to business school actually fucking care about business, right? Like, <laughs> I'm like, why did I go to business school? <laughs> like, why? Um, you know, it served me well, and and I don't regret a second I spent in corporate. I'm so grateful for all of, all of it, because um, it it was a catalyst too to how I got to where I am today. Um, but I think leaning inwards is so important, and we don't do, we're just constantly seeking external validation, looking at what everybody else is doing. What do we want? What's important to us? Like the shoulds, right? You should have a home. You should get married. You should have kids. You should do this. You should, you know, and we're bombarded and we start to lose track of like, what do I really want? And if the should is important to you, that is a process of finding out your own authenticity. If the, if you want to have kids by certain, if you want to make the salary, if you want to work in corporate, go for it. But, but that self-reflection doesn't happen unless you make the effort to do so. And I find like when you sit alone with your thoughts in meditation, um, it's not always a Zen moment. Sometimes it's aha moments. Sometimes thoughts bubble up that you've been suppressing for a long time. So you get to know yourself better. You get to know what triggers you, what, what you want in life, what's important to you. And you become more and more solid in that foundation. So you're less seeking, you know, validation externally, um, or doing things for the wrong reasons. And you're starting to, you know, do things for self, but it's, it's such an important journey to really get the box out of your shoe. 
such a such an excellent point it's um you know and you you talk a lot about that chatty brain and i think a lot of people don't really understand that you can control the momentum of that chatty brain and maybe actually now that i'm saying this out can you give a great definition of the chatty brain and exactly what's mm-hmm. what that's doing to us yeah so it's a term we use in the in, in the book is that the observing mind and, and the chatty mind and the chatty mind is the mind that we are so often associated with it's the mind that's thinking these sixty thousand thoughts a day um and we have such little control over it right we don't even know what our next thought is going to be and so if we start using you know what i refer to as the observing mind and just being kind of a witness to the chatty mind so the, the observing mind doesn't have you know, an opinion, it doesn't try to solve for what you're thinking. It just says, Hey, Bruce, you cannot stop thinking about work, you know, or like, Hey, Nick, I know you're upset at that person, but like, honestly, it's three o'clock in the morning, go to sleep. You know, it just observes. Um, and, and that process of the awareness of thought of like being the witness of observing the thought can be so powerful because then you can do something about it. Otherwise you're just on autopilot. The minute you become aware, like, and, and this is, you know, you, you've been to one of my workshops and I ask people, write down your most self-deprecating thoughts. And people are surprised. They don't even realize the shit talking that's going on, the imposter syndrome, like all of the things they're saying to themselves, you know, that are impacting the way that they're, they're showing up. So, um, you know, once you become aware of the thoughts, then you can start to move through them. And I remember a mentor once said to me, once you get into the fifth or sixth thought about something, that's when you really start going down the rabbit hole, right? So if you can catch the thought um, and, and shift to a mindful moment or shift to something else or, 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 or battle that thought with something positive, I mean, that is so incredibly empowering right there, um, you know, because, you again, you're going from the mind controlling you to you now starting to have some control over what's going on in there. Fantastic. And uh, those are those are great definitions of, uh, you know, why, why this is so important. I think the benefits are, um, you know, mute, everyone agrees upon the benefit um, of doing some of these things. But I was wondering if we can move now into, again, I'm a, let's say I'm a beginner. Um, h- how do people start to get this in their lives? Because I believe that's where a lot of people struggle, right? These, these concepts can seem very abstract to people, uh, especially yeah. in, in a society that's very tit for tat, you know, you, you want to do this and get exactly this in return. And, and this is kind of an unknown. It's, it's, you know, do, do this or different ways of thinking and you may not see immediate results, but it's something that really takes practice to, to nail. Um, so I was hoping you could, again, for, for our listeners who are resonating with this, which I'm sure many are, um, who are stressed out or on autopilot a lot, how does one start the process of kicking that? Yeah, I think I always say like meditation is such a personal practice. So you have to really lean in and and do what works for you. That's the most important thing. Um, And just to go through a few meditation myths, I mean, the biggest thing I get is, you know, I can't meditate. Why? My thoughts won't stop. They never fucking stop. (laughs) They don't stop in meditation. It's not like you sit there and suddenly it's like your mind knows to shut off. Uh -uh, Uh-uh. Sometimes they're more active when you're just sitting quiet with your mind or you're just more aware of them. So, um, you know, not, not expecting your thoughts to stop. Um, not labeling your practice is good or bad. There's no such thing. You know, when people say, oh, I had a terrible minute, there's no such thing. The fact that you sat down and took time with you and your mind, even if it's for a minute in the morning, you know, is the start of something. Um, And sometimes, you know, a good meditation might be perceived as you're feeling super zen and yeah, that happens. And sometimes 
all the shit you're suppressing comes up. So it can be scary. And suddenly you're like, I didn't know that I was thinking about this thing that much. It must be really bothering me. And and that's a good thing too. Um, so, you know, don't expect your thoughts to stop. Don't label your meditation as good or bad. It just is. Um, and then lean in to what works for you. Just because an app works for 95% of the population, like Headspace or Calm, if it doesn't resonate with you, try something else. The good thing about where we are today is there's so many options. Like when I started meditating in, you know, the early 2000s, it was like, there's, you had to go to like a temple or a plot, you know, like, but you can go on YouTube, you can look up any type of meditation. Like you want meditation in silence. You want mantra chanting, you want, um, nature sounds, you want a guided meditation, you know, so play around with it and you can start small. I think people think, oh my God, I've got to sit there for half an hour. There's no way. So I always tell my clients, like, just start with a minute a day for a week. And then the next week go to two minutes and the next week go to three. And then suddenly you might be like, oh, I'm sitting here. I just sat for like 15 minutes. I can't believe, cause it just naturally, it's like one of the gym. When you first start, you're just like, Hey, you, you have to get into that habit. And once you're in the habit, it's like, you can't stop because you know the benefits because the impact of meditation is not just felt in meditation. There's a whole trickle effect to the rest of your, your day and, and, and really your life, because, you know, you, you start to build that mindset of getting really intimate with your mind and you start to build that muscle of like chatty mind, observing mind in meditation. Right. And I, if I can share this one, it's a long winded answer, but this one um, technique, I, you know, that's, that's really helpful is like to picture yourself in meditation as super cheesy, but as the ever present sky um, and your thoughts as clouds. And so when the when thoughts come in, people are like, oh shit, you know, I can't, oh no, I'm thinking about, don't resist them. They're gonna come in. I've, I've been meditating for 18 years. I've never had a meditation without a thought or a thousand. So let them come in, but then let them go, right? Like just let them come in gently and be like, oh yeah, I see you, I see you there, okay. And then when you learn that technique in meditation, it's, it becomes more automatic in mindfulness in, in, in the day to day. You can like, you're, you're feeling all anxious and you can be like, oh yeah, I see you and you can let it go, you know? So there's so many benefits. It really is for everybody. I really want to, you know, one of my goals is to take away the stigma that like meditation and mindfulness is only for a certain type of person. Anybody can do it. Yeah. And or Nick, were you going to, did you have a question? I was just going to say, can you, um, again, getting back to mindfulness versus meditation, um, in terms of, of mindfulness, what might that look like to, to, you know, put in somebody's day, right? Like how, how long are we, are we talking one breath, two, like two breaths? Are we, are we talking like, what are ways that, you know, again, mindfulness is, is kind of the, the day-to-day short burst uh, form of meditation. What, What are some, you know, expected lengths of mindfulness or, or, you know, easy ways you can sneak that into your day. Meditation or mindfulness? Sorry, mindfulness. Mindfulness. Oh my gosh. Every single moment is an opportunity to be mindful, right? Like mindful listening. Like when you're sitting in a meeting, how often are we sitting in meetings? We're fucking checking our phones, like emailing, like doing all kinds. We're not in the present moment. And like, this society and capitalism, it's like, yeah, multitask. No, the mind can only think, the brain can only think one thought at a time, right? And so we're constantly being interrupted. And so mindfulness is just about being in the here and now. Um, and so even when you're going grocery shopping, um, you know, one of the tips we talked about in the, in the workshop I did with Bruce and his team was, you know, start speaking out loud what you're doing. 
you know, you're walking down the halls. Now I'm picking out an apple. Now I'm getting bananas, you know, and your mind's going to run off like 50 times in like five minutes. That's going to happen. But you just keep bringing it back and you keep bringing it back. You know, in the mornings, like when I open my laptop, instead of being like, oh my God, that's I try to just be like, I'm opening my laptop. You know, I'm saying like, you can recite what you're doing or like taking a few deep breaths when you notice things bubbling up. And I know that's so overstated, but we all need to learn how to breathe more effectively. We breathe from our test level. We've learned how to do this. And um, a woman by the, the name of Linda Stone, she coined the term email apnea because she was like, we actually stop breathing when we check our email. Like that's how stressed out we've become. And the more shallow your breathing is, the more the negative, right? The more panicked, worried, angry, like it starts to, so you want to go deep and start breathing through your diaphragm or your stomach. So sometimes I just do breathing exercises to kick off my, my workshops because it's important to know how to access that. And, and it, and it does calm your nervous system, a few really, really deep breaths. So those are, there's so many ways leading me into your senses when you're going for a walk and you're like really leaning into what you're seeing, smelling, hearing, and your mind's not thinking about everything. Um, and just again, pulling back, you can't go for a 20 minute walk and expect your mind to be mindful the entire time. So I think letting go of that pressure and that expectation, I think there's a misconception that people can be mindful 24 seven, hell fucking no, right? All you can do is just be aware and then bring it back and bring it back. And bring... So every opportunity is, an op even when you're talking to someone, being super, super present when you're talking to them and not like, you know, thinking about what they're saying and how it layers onto your life or, you know, all the different ways that we go when we're even having a conversation. So just being fully present and watch how that affects your relationships. Like it changes your life. It, it makes you show up as a, as a better version of yourself. Yes. And it's been, gosh, so many things that you're mentioning now is bringing exactly back to, to the workshop and why it was so profound and why I reached out to you instantly. And a lot of it was, speaking things out loud, I instantly started doing that. No and way. I instantly started doing that. But here's the thing. If, if you don't, if you don't keep up with it, like I've noticed it wasn't until you just said that, where I was like, I, I fell off a little bit of that. <laughs> and, and, and it, there's a lot of it, right. Where, you know, you hop on your email and it's the same thing where if you, if you think about it with, Hey, you're dealing with something and you, you don't tell a friend or you have a problem with a friend and you keep it in and you just keep bottling it in. Yeah. It's almost like the, the same thing of like, Hey, I'm hopping on an email. I have a really busy day. I, it, it's like, it's like being able to just like you would talk to that friend. If you had a problem, it's like talking to yourself. Yeah. That you have a problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. What? I actually going to say I had a meditation teacher say, we don't talk to ourselves enough. Like there's one person we're going to live the rest of our lives with us. Right. So have those conversations, like battle your mind. You know, I, one of my tips is treat your mind like a child. It's this out of control toddler that is taking you on all these rides. So start having conversations with it and put it in its place, you know, and, and it is funny how like you kind of start out and then you like, it's like going to the gym. I always tell people like, it's not like you get to a place with mindfulness or meditation and then you're just there. It's like, you go to the gym for six months, you get the six pack and you can't just stop going. It's not going to stay. Right. Right? Right. Like, you can't just stop going. Like, like it's, it's not sustainable. You, it's, you have to keep at it. And I think it, that's why it's such a continued process. And it's okay. We fall off here and there. That's, 
that's life. Um, and again, no judgment. That's a big thing with this practice too. I feel like there's so much stigma around how it should be and what it should look like. And you should have a meditation space and you should sit like this and it should be at this time. And it's like, just don't judge yourself. Don't make it this big thing and think of it as something that's adding to your life. Not like this is another thing I have to now do, you know, like it's just like another thing that's actually going to, you know, bring you peace and, and calm, um, in your day. Yes. And, and so, but it, it takes me to what, what I'm coming in contact more and more is just really how powerful words are, how powerful journaling is, but, but also, or not, but how powerful journaling is. And also just what you're speaking out and being very careful of what you speak out. And there was a really excellent study that you did with Doctor, or that you you did on, I believe it was Doctor Emoto. Emoto. Yes. Could you could you tell our audience just like very you know high level that because I I was I was floored. Yeah, that was that was really powerful, and I came across that like twenty years ago, and I was like, I have to share this with the world. Um, um, and so essentially. Um, Marasu Emoto was a Japanese researcher, philosopher, photographer. He wanted to prove that human consciousness had an, a, a, an effect on the molecular structure of water. So we took water from the same source and he put it in different groups of jars. So one group was like, you know, wonderful things like love and thank you and um, I am peace. And the other group of jars were like awful things like you make me sick and you are disgusting. And so he... He, he took that water from the same source, put it into the two groups of jars and kind of acted accordingly. So like played really calming music on the one side, played really jarring music on the other. He talked to them. He kind of put that energy around them because it's not just words, right? It's it's energy. It's how we're feeling. You you know, when you meet someone, you're like, like I'm not bad about like you can you can feel it, right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not I'm not handling this person's energy or like, you know, thoughts too, thoughts. And so. Um, he kind of put that, all of that into these jars and after some time looked at it under a microscope and found that the ones from the, the love and the thank you were like perfectly shaped water crystals and like translucent in shape. And the ones that were, you know, treated poorly and kids do this with apples. They cut an apple in half, put it on two ends of their living space and they'll talk shit to one half and like really love the other. And the one half that they've talked shit to goes all moldy and bruisey. And so that's what happened with the water that um, in the jars that were not, he was not so nice to, there was no, there was no shape or molecular, molecular structure of, of any kind. It was just like, you know, this yellow blurriness. And so, you know, and you're, and, and Bruce, Bruce, you know why I'm talking about this experiment, but everyone else is like, why is she talking about water? Who the fuck cares? Well, 70 to 80% of our body is made up of water. And so, you know, when we're not, when we're not talking to ourselves nicely, which I think is the crux of self-love, everyone's like, oh, self-love, golf courses, spa day, blah, blah, blah. No, at the crux of self-love is what are we saying to ourselves? Like what, how are we treating ourselves? Cause we treat ourselves so much worse than how the world sees us. Um, and so when we are talking shit to ourselves or allowing other people to talk shit to us, we can't see what's happening on a molecular level, on a cellular level, but you better believe there's like an impact going on. Definitely. And it's actually, so when I, so I, I, when I told my wife that I was interviewing you and I, I started that we were interviewing you, sorry. And, and going over your book in that particular study, 
This is why it's so important for everybody to get that damn book because she, it, after she read that, she was just like, you better not fuck this interview up. Uh, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> it, it, but it's, it's so, it's so important, right? Because uh, I can feel it. Like I, I practice this, I say these three things and it's for anything that I'm about to do. And I can just feel this calming presence, right? It's, I reclaim my authority. I reclaim my will. I reclaim my authorship. And that authorship piece is so key because then it just tells me if I like, I am the writer of this. Yeah. And and like, I'm getting a little bit of goosebumps now. I, so. I was just like, <laughs> right now. It literally was just, I swear to God, I was like, I have chills right now when you said that. I love that. And, but it's just like those little things. I, I mean, we, we, overcomplicate we, and this is no surprise to anybody but we overcomplicate all these things but you could literally just change the direction of something by one cutting out that chatty brain at the very stem like right when it starts growing cut that out and then being able to say something something positive something you know spin it in a way of of, of speaking whether it's something into existence but to to at least reclaim like what you already have like what you're owed in this life yeah. Yeah, I just, I'm going to sound like a little, but like, I, I just spoke to a medium and he was like, you are the writer, producer, author of your own story. Um, the only caveat I will say is if you're having like really disturbing thoughts of, you know, trauma or depression, yes. or right, like you don't want a mindfulness that way, that way, you know, <laughs> when you want, but you want to make sure that you're getting the therapy and you're getting the help and you're just, cause I, I also did that too. There's something called spiritual bypassing or toxic positivity. And that was my entire twenties. And like, even, you know, into my thirties where I was just like, everything's fine. Good vibes only da, da, da. And I just suppressed my grief, you know, my, my healing, my trauma, all of that was just like sitting there. Um, so I just want to, I, I made that mistake of like, you know, trying to, to meditate my way through things when I actually didn't deal with things. So I think there is kind of this parallel path if you've gone through, you know, extreme trauma, which I, I did at 16 and, and didn't really deal with it at the time. I think that is, so that, that's a really great distinction as well. And, you know, that also brings up too with, you know, um, with, with um, a, a mentor of mine, I'll say, where, he he was dealing he dealt with substance abuse and he got to a point where he started someone had asked him someone had asked him like how's how how's things going and his natural instinct was you know this is uh, you know this everything's great you know we're you know doing this it's a toxic positivity and then he just stopped he was just like you know what i'll be honest with you like shit's not going great like, yeah. this isn't, this isn't like, I'm not feeling well. And it was funny because then that person, it's that level of vulnerability that comes then right after that. And then that yeah. person started sharing something with him yeah. and let their guard down. And it completely, you know, don't, don't need to give it a, give it away, but it's, they completely opened up. And I think that that vulnerability and just being completely honest, like that is really key as well. So I agree with everything you're saying there. Yeah, you need, I think it's Jay Z that says you need to uh, you need to feel it to heal it, um, and especially I'm gonna like advocate for a second like men and mental health people who identify as men. Um, I think it's so important, so important to to go there 
become intimate with your feelings, um, acknowledge, because meditation is a way, like you can go from numbing to meditation. That's not good, right? So when shit's coming up, like feel um, the emotions, cry it out, you know, like beyond anger, because there's this whole like, the only acceptable emotion men can feel.